1: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearce. This podcast is brought to you by Policy Forum at Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Crawford School is the region's leading graduate policy school. If you want to find out how to take your public policy career to the next level, come and join us for your postgraduate degree or short courses. You can learn more about what options are available and how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study and I am delighted to welcome back into the studio. It's been an awful long time since we've had her in here. My co-host today, Sue Regan. Hello, Sue.
0: Hello, Martin.
1: It's great to have you here. Sue is a PhD scholar at Crawford School and it's as I said, it's been a while since we've had you in the studio. Just how much did you miss us?
0: <laughs> I missed you lots, Martin, and the, and the pod team. Um... Yeah, I I just felt like I needed to stop juggling so many balls so that I could finish my PhD, um, and I've submitted my thesis now. So congratulations! Can, thank you, Martin. I can relax, and it's it's good to
1: be back. Were you pleased with how the thesis came out?
0: Uh, yes, not bad. Um I think it was it's a great achievement. I you know you could have I could have kept working on it, but I'm I was pretty pleased. Happy enough uh, that I could submit.
1: Well, it is a huge achievement to submit a thesis so well done. Thank you. Now, what's caught your eye in the world of policy over the last week?
0: Well, um a couple of things have caught my eye this week. Uh the Prime Minister has announced a uh, 3.8 billion dollar Uh, infrastructure stimulus. Um, You know, and this has followed calls from the Reserve Bank that uh, we need a fiscal stimulus given how low interest rates are at the moment. Um, And I think it will be interesting to see the details of what the stimulus is going to be in the coming weeks. So that's one really for us all to uh, keep our eyes on. Um, But the other policy issue that's caught my eye was the government's announcement on robo debt. Um, you know, the robo debt program, I think we've talked about on the podcast a while ago, you know, operates by sending, uh, automatically generated, uh, Notices to welfare recipients. And, you know, and these state that recipients have to clarify their income or they have to repay a debt.
1: It's caused a lot of stress for it a lot has. of people. You
0: know, I think there's a, there's a huge amount of evidence now that it's caused uh, high levels of hardship and stress and trauma even with people receiving these notices out of the blue. So in a way, this is a bit of a concession by the government that they've decided that they will no longer raise a debt where the only evidence they have is from the Australian Taxation Office, this uh, average incoming method of calculating debt. Um, and they've also said, you know, that they would review uh, all current debts that are outstanding. So this is this is good news. Uh, I think it will uh, help reduce further hardship. We don't yet know what the extent of the changes will be. Um, but I thought it was also interesting because it tells us something about the perhaps the limits of automation, uh, you know, in particular, uh, automation in systems which are about humans and their their very complex lives. Um, So that caught my eye. Um, What about you, Martin? What's caught your eye in the world of policy this week?
1: Can I say I have barely noticed anything in the world of policy over the last week because I have been working on something. In fact, the whole Policy Forum team has been working on something quite special. It's a big week for us and for the podcast because yesterday uh, we celebrated five years of Policy Forum, the website. Uh, From humble beginnings, the site's gone on to publish nearly 2,000 pieces in that time from more than 1,400 contributors from all around the world. It's been an amazing journey, actually, and thanks to everyone who has been involved with that throughout that five years. And to celebrate our fifth anniversary, the Policy Forum team have been working really hard to bring an all-new, more modern and user-friendly design of the Policy Forum website, which went live yesterday. Uh, do check it out if you haven't seen it or you visited it for a while. I think it looks lovely. Um, and for our we also invited authors that have previously written for Policy Forum to contribute uh, new pieces for our Uh, special in-focus section, which we're calling Policy Futures. And in that section, we are shedding light on what lies ahead for some key areas of policy in the coming five years and what policymakers should be focusing on. So, listeners, don't forget to check it out after you're finished listening to this part.
0: That sounds great, Martin. Um, Now, today on the podcast, we want to look at innovation and the wealth gap in Australia. Uh, amazing new technologies such as artificial intelligence and uh, genetical advances uh, have brought huge benefits to society. However, in Australia, income and wealth inequality have increased in recent times and our record on innovation is poor. Um, so today we want to ask how can we encourage innovation and help create a more equal society? Um, we have a very special guest to take on this question, haven't we, Mum?
1: We certainly do. It's someone that we've been trying to organise to get on the podcast for a while, so I'm really excited that we've uh, actually been able to uh, get him on for this episode. It is Andrew Lee, MP. Andrew is the Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury. He's the Shadow Assistant Minister for Charities, and he's also the federal member for FENA here in the ACT. Now, he's the author of a new book with Joshua Gans, which is called innovation plus equality, how to create a future that is more Star Trek than Terminator. So that appeals to the sci-fi nerd in me, as well as uh, the fact that I'm interested in economics. He's also the host of the excellent The Good Life podcast. Give that a listen if you haven't checked it out. And he's formerly of this manner. He used to be an ANU professor. So we're really excited to talk to Andrew. So how about we hear what he has to say? Welcome, Andrew. Great to have you on the podcast.
2: Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Sue. Great to be with you. Andrew, in your
1: new book with... Uh, Joshua Gans. It's called Innovation and Equality. You write that if we encourage innovation in the right way, our future can look more like the cheerful techno-utopia of Star Trek than the dark techno-dystopia of the Terminator. So first of all, let me test your nerd credentials here. Which <laughs> Star Trek are we referring to? Is it James C. Kirk, Jean-Luc Picard, or one of the sort of later, darker, Netflix-style?
2: Well, I think we're thinking of the original uh, Star Trek, the one that Joshua Gans and I grew up on. Uh, And it's using a metaphor first put forward by Jerry Kaplan, the uh, technology writer, uh, who suggested that there's these these two visions of the future, one in which the machines take over as in Terminator, another in which we're able to harness technology to live a better life as in Star Trek. Uh, We think that uh, we ought to be optimistic about the future so long as we get the policy settings right. We can have more innovation and more equality.
1: And to continue on a pop culture theme, just for one more question. I mean, there are plenty of concerns around our technological future, particularly around AI. Do you worry in any way that we might be currently on a path towards a sort of Terminator T1000 style future?
2: Joshua and I don't stay awake at night worrying about the singularity, uh, but it's uh, it's there as a possibility and certainly organisations that look at existential risks factor that in along with pandemics and uh, nuclear holocaust as, as one of the things that could ultimately imperil society. But our book isn't so much about the singularity. We use it more as a metaphor. Uh, when you ha- think about a society in which robots can do better than all of us, it helps uh, someone with tertiary degrees put themselves in the shoes of a routine work. Uh, who's seen themselves squeezed out by factory robots or by uh, accounting software, uh, which has uh, caused manufacturing work or uh, the work of bookkeepers to decline. Sandra, I'm just wondering, what was the motivation for this book? What, What motivated you to write it? I've always been passionate about inequality. Joshua Gans has always been passionate about innovation. And we talked over the years about the interplay between the two, including when I was uh, uh, a professor here at the Australian National University. Uh, it took a while for the uh, the book to, uh, to, to get going. Uh, but once it did, we found lots of ways in which we could uh, construct policies that would hit in the sweet spot of innovation and equality. Economists are fond of quoting Arthur Okun's equity efficiency trade-off, the idea that you can have fairness or you can have growth, but you can't have both. Uh, it turns out in a whole host of areas from getting intellectual property right to getting copyright law right to investing in great schooling systems for disadvantaged children, uh, policies that boost equality uh, often boost innovation too.
1: So let's talk a little more about uh, innovation and particularly innovation in Australia. Um, a Across the sample of around 30 OECD nations, Australia ranked fourth last for the share of large businesses collaborating on innovation and sixth last in businesses collaborating with suppliers and second last in collaboration between businesses and universities. That doesn't all sound good. Why is Australia lagging behind other developed nations in this space?
2: Martin, it's partly a cultural issue. A survey which asked Australians whether they'd be deterred from starting a business by fear of failure uh, find 41% say yes, which is higher than the number that you get uh, in the United Kingdom or the United States. Uh, But that's only part of the answer. I think it's also the institutions. Uh, As you say, we've got very little collaboration on innovation uh, between our research uh, institutions and businesses. Uh, To just give you a stark example of that, if you walk the streets around Stanford or MIT, uh, you'll Stumble across a whole lot of spin-off businesses. If you walk the streets around a G08 university in Australia, you'll most likely stumble across a bunch of terrific restaurants and cafes. Uh, so we need to do more to encourage business to work better with uh, the university sector. Uh, we also, uh, in, in our view, uh, need to make sure that there are greater opportunities for children from disadvantaged backgrounds to connect with mentors to become entrepreneurs. Uh, only uh, a quarter of, uh, of entrepreneurs are women, women, Uh, only uh, a small share uh, come from these disadvantaged backgrounds, largely because the bank of mum and dad funds a lot of startups. So the more we can do to identify the lost Murray Curies and the lost Albert Einsteins, uh, the more innovative and more equal society will be.
1: Can I just ask you a bit more about that that fear of failure thing? Why, I mean, you've underpinned, you've talked about some of the ways that Australia should be addressing this. But do you think the what are the kind of cultural reasons that would suggest that, you know, Australians have a greater fear of failure than perhaps, you know, Americans? Uh,
2: we've got a solid social, social safety net, so that shouldn't explain the difference between us and other countries. Uh, but it may also be the unwillingness of Australian managers uh, to see failure as being a, a, a tray they should uh, select on. Uh, if you've got an economy where most industries are oligopolies, then their focus is not in chasing down new markets and coming up with fresh ideas. Uh, it's about building a bigger moat and protecting what they've got. And that leads to a, a great degree of caution among your biggest companies. So if we had more competition in other sectors of the Australian economy, uh, that would breed uh, a more entrepreneurial mindset among managers, uh, which would then have positive spin-offs for uh, a whole lot of small businesses as well.
0: What, what do you think are the, the other challenges that uh, people face when they want to become innovators? I'm thinking about you know, the diversity we have in our society and you know, what, what are the challenges that particular people might face, say women or people with disability.
2: It's often about uh, not seeing startup entrepreneurs who are like you. Uh, so uh, one of my favourite examples is Resolution One Two Three, a company which uh, works on online employment law, uh, started by a woman who uh, saw it as an opportunity when she was returning from maternity leave. Uh, but not every startup is like that. Uh, uh, young men from advantage backgrounds are disproportionately represented among our startup entrepreneurs. Uh, Joshua Gans at uh, the Creative Destruction Lab at the University of Toronto uh, focuses on what he calls the missing market for judgment, uh, the idea that often as a startup entrepreneur, even if you've got the money and the idea, uh, you often don't know the uses to which it can be put and, and how you'll fit within that bigger business ecosystem. That's where mentors can come in and that's where a great mentoring program, uh, ideally with mentors who look like the entrepreneurs, uh, can really make a difference. Are
1: things changing? I mean, we we are seeing you talk here talking about sort of mentorship programs and things like that, and I feel like over the last few years we have seen a sort of push towards that. Are things changing in Australia towards the kind of future that you're talking about, or are we uh, are we are we stuck?
2: They're changing on the input side, but not on the output side. Uh, so in terms of inputs, we have a whole lot of uh, startup incubator programs at Australian universities, which are increasingly thinking not only how do they churn out uh, a dozen entrepreneurs a year, but how do they give uh, a large share of their undergraduate cohort a startup experience? Uh, But if you look at the aggregate statistics, uh, things are changing, Martin, and not in a good way. Uh, 8% of Australian businesses say they produce an innovation that's new to the world, but that's down from 11% in 2013. Uh, We've seen a fall in the uh, number of new businesses being created in Australia uh, and a decline in the job switching rate, suggesting that the Australian economy is less dynamic today than it was in the past.
0: And you've, you've already talked about how in Australia there is a, a greater fear of failure. Now, how can we encourage more people to innovate in Australia given those high levels of uh,
2: failure fear? It's about making innovation less scary uh, and about making it uh, less of an elite sport. Uh, I think of the best innovation programs as being democratizing innovation, uh, encouraging people to think about being innovators uh, if they're studying uh, physiotherapy as well as if they're studying engineering, uh, recognising that breakthroughs can come in all sorts of interesting ways. They can be process breakthroughs as well as product breakthroughs. Uh, But to think of ourselves as a nation that makes things that are new to the world uh, will not only make us more prosperous, uh, but also will provide a greater sense of agility. Uh, The thing we can be sure about in the uh, labour market over the next couple of generations is that it will change markedly. The thing we can't be sure about is precisely how it will change. Joshua Gans and I are very sceptical of people who think they've got a perfect crystal ball, uh, that they can forecast precisely which jobs will grow and which will shrink. And we we talk about some of the methodological problems in studies that claim to have done this. Uh, instead, we need to accept that uncertainty is just a, a fundamental fact.
0: Mm. Given that, though, I mean, I, I think we can agree that uncertainty is a, a fact that we have to deal with. It's... Um, we still would want more innovations to be successful. Um how, how would we go about that?
2: ensuring that there's an uh, appropriate venture capital pool as part of it, but also that those uh, venture capital entrepreneurs or venture capital investors uh, can have access to uh, to entrepreneurs. And when you see this in action, it's, uh, it's terrific fun. Uh, I went along to a uh, pitch night at the Canberra Innovation Network in the city a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it came off the back of a uh, fortnight in Parliament uh, which had been particularly dispiriting. Uh, you'd expect me to say that, I'm, I'm in the opposition, uh, but to to be there on the pitch night and see these fresh new ideas being put forward uh, by uh, Australian entrepreneurs to venture capitalists uh, that was that was great fun and uh, we just need, we need to see more of that uh, more of those new ideas emerging. Uh, And the more that our Australian economy uh, allows spaces for new ideas to flourish, the better. Uh, The risk of monopolies is that they can, uh, like a large oak tree in the forest, overshadow the saplings and make it difficult for new ideas and businesses to emerge.
1: What's the role of government in all of this? I mean, you've talked about, you know, how corporations need to change their mindset to encourage innovation and uh, allay people's fear of failures. But what can government do to get in and encourage this?
2: Part of it is in the direct innovation. Uh, Mariana Masakatu at the University College London has pointed out that many of the innovations that uh, we use today are the process of government research. And she gives examples. If you just pick up your smartphone, you look at a whole lot of technologies underpinning it from the GPS to the internet to touch screens, emerge from government research. Uh, one study that looked at 200-odd uh, drugs that had emerged in the United States uh, aimed to find what share of those 200 had received government funding in their development, and the answer was all of them. Uh, so there's a big role for uh, for government in that, particularly in that basic stage, innovation. Uh, there's also uh, an importance in making sure that the institutions are fostering moonshot innovation, encouraging people. people to go big rather than just go incremental. Joshua and I also think there's scope for innovation prizes, uh, that uh, rather than only funding people to try, occasionally you should fund people to succeed. What that can do is it can lead to the development of unconventional teams, uh, people who wouldn't necessarily have the CVs to attract uh, the research funding, uh, but who have the smarts and, uh, and the out of the box idea to get there better than anyone else.
1: Now, your book isn't just about innovation. It's about innovation and equality. So explain to us the link between innovation and inequality and particularly that link in a sort of an Australian context.
2: People often argue that uh, inequality is just the price of progress, Uh, that the fact that the uh, earnings have risen three times as fast for the top 10th of Australian workers as the bottom 10th of Australian workers uh, is simply the price of progress. Uh, The fact that since the beginning of uh, the 21st century, uh, wealth has stayed flat for the bottom fifth. Uh, but gone up by more than a million dollars for the top fifth, well, that's just what you've got to have in order to have uh, an innovation, technologically driven society. Uh, We reject that. Uh, We don't think that most innovation is about the size of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, uh, but instead it's about uh, the uh, impediments to going searching in the first place. Uh, So we believe that there's a lot more scope for making sure that we have great teachers in disadvantaged schools. Uh, we think having ta- trades training, which is uh, generalist and plugged into the, the rise of online training, is absolutely vital. Uh, and writing for a US audience, because we're publishing with MIT Press, uh, we urge America to move away from its current student loan system towards something that looks more like the Australian Hex help system.
0: But in the, in the Australian context, uh, how can we become both more entrepreneurial and more equal at the same
2: time? Oh, it's, uh, it's partly about getting education right. It's partly about getting uh, the competitive ecosystem right. Uh, it's also, also uh, in part about making sure that our intellectual property laws are fit for purpose. Uh, intellectual property provides a, a temporary monopoly, uh, which can make uh, uh, inequality worse. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, uh, we're getting the trade-off right there, and so ideas uh, are placed readily out into the public domain. Uh, we also think that there's more that you could do with uh, uh, startup up entrepreneurs in, in schools where the whole innovation mantra just just isn't reaching right now, uh, so why not think about programs uh, in? disadvantaged communities uh, which aim to identify those who have a new idea and want to make a difference. Um, I can't believe that uh, uh, 22% of all the great ideas in Australia uh, are being developed by women uh, who constitute 51% of the population. Uh, So we ought to do more to encourage uh, talented women to be able to follow that entrepreneurship route.
0: Andrew, you you make it sound easy. Um, I just wonder if you could say, talk to us more about uh, the challenges in this, uh, you know, being both entrepreneurial mm. and more equal. Um, you know, it's it's not happening. Um, so it feels like there's, you know, very big, perhaps cultural or economic uh, challenges
2: here. Vested interests don't like being challenged. And if you're a firm which currently has non-compete clauses, you quite enjoy the fact that you're telling your workers that if that they cannot switch to a competitor uh, and cannot start a competing business, a fifth of American workers uh, have uh, these clauses in their employment contracts. Uh, the big incumbents like them, uh, but nimble st- they're, the, uh, they're doing damage to the nimble startups uh, who could otherwise be creating a whole lot more prosperity for the u s economy and it does damage to workers anytime you make it harder for workers to shift jobs, uh, you put downward pressure pressure on wages. Uh, and you increase wage inequality.
1: Andrew, we've talked about what governments should be, could or should be doing. We've talked about what corporations could and should be doing. But, you know, there would be a lot of people listening to this podcast that you know, might think that they've got an innovative idea or they would like to develop an innovative idea. What should individuals be doing to tackle some of the uh, problems that you've identified
2: here? If you've got an innovative idea, go for it and recognise that the right sort of employer will see a failure as an innovator as a strength for your next job. But even if you're working in a corporation or in government, uh, recognise that you've got a role in changing the systems that encourage more ideas to come forward. One of the other important things that Joshua and I point to is the gender gap. Uh, We have half the population of women, 51% in fact, and one of the factors that is exacerbating the gender gap is sexual harassment. Sexual harassment doesn't just uh, impede growth, it also impedes fairness. Uh, And people who speak out in the face of off-colour jokes, harassing behaviour, workplace norms that aren't consistent with where we ought to be in 2019, uh, improve the quality of their workplace. Uh, So if you're speaking out against sexual harassment, uh, you're going to help make Australia more innovative and more equal, and that's a great thing.
0: As we're based at one of Australia's um, main research and education hubs, the Australian National University, I'd also like to uh, know what role can universities play specifically in driving innovation and fostering... Uh, equality?
2: Universities shouldn't be too jealous in taking the intellectual property of their professors. Uh, Some of the experiments that have been done have shown that uh, when universities take an excessively large share of the intellectual property, uh, you see less innovation as a result. Uh, Universities also have a great role to play in matching Uh, mentors with innovators, Uh, and there's a a whole host of these programs going on uh, around the country that uh, I know ANU is implementing but also learning from. Uh, I love the fact that uh, the University of Wollongong, for example, uh, in its I Accelerate program is taking advantage of the fact that it's in a city with a surplus of skilled manufacturing workers. And uh, and ANU being in a city where there's significant uh, Uh, Government innovation and defence innovation uh, also has great potential for extending the engagement between ANU students who want to start something uh, and establish businesses uh, who want to mentor a a bright student.
1: So just finally, talking about the sort of way forward here, Andrew, what is the one thing that the Australian government could do right now that would Best, encourage innovation that could help create a more equal society.
2: Make teacher quality the central focus of education policy. We talk a lot in education policy about the curriculum, about class sizes, about uh, uh, ways in which we do testing. Uh, But all of that falls by the wayside if you can get uh, highly talented people into the classroom and keep them there. Uh, And yet a succession of studies, uh, my own work with Chris Ryan while I was at the ANU, but also work recently by the Grattan Institute, uh, has shown that the academic aptitude of new teachers is falling rather than rising. Uh, We need to make teacher quality a a core national priority uh, if we are to boost productivity uh, and improve equality. Uh, We should ensure that teachers no longer train on poor kids and finish their careers teaching rich kids, Uh, but instead that disadvantaged schools uh, have terrific teachers at the front of the classroom. Uh, If we can get that teacher effectiveness piece right, uh, as Finland did uh, as recently as the 1970s, uh, we can have the same sort of turnaround that Finland had, uh, moving on the international league tables from a position behind Australia to one where it's now streets ahead of us.
0: One last question before we let you go, Andrew. Uh, in our Facebook uh, podcast group, uh, we maintain a list of great podcasts that people are listening to. I think
1: your own podcast is actually on that list, Andrew. Good. Good.
2: Very exciting. Thank um, you.
0: But what, what else is currently on your playlist?
2: Uh, I uh, I really enjoy Conversations with Tyler, uh, Tyler Cowan's podcast, uh, because it doesn't pretend to be for anyone else. Uh, it's pitched as the conversation that Tyler wants to have. Uh, it is uh, ad hoc and jumpy. There's no pretense at segues from topic to topic, uh, but that willingness to... Uh, read deeply on one person's work uh, and then dive into the uh, qu- open questions the inconsistencies uh, and how they relate to the world's be- big topics um, I, uh, I i relish that as i uh, as I run through the canberra bush of a morning
0: Great. Well, we'll make sure that's on the list.
1: It certainly gets added to the list.
0: Yeah. Um, Andrew, thank you very much for coming in today. That was a fascinating conversation and it sounds like your new book is going to be a very good read. Um, thank you. Thanks so much. So
1: thanks, man. Welcome back and thanks once again, Andrew, for that really interesting discussion. Listeners, we are really keen to get your thoughts on what we've talked about today. You can reach out to us. We're on Facebook. You can find us as Policy Forum Pod on there. Or you can also contact us on Twitter where we are Apps Policy Forum, APBS Policy Forum, or you can go old school and send us an email podcast at policyforum.net. And also, if you've ever thought about getting into a policy facing role, then perhaps the Master of Economic Policy at Crawford School might be for you. In this program, you will learn more about public finance, foreign investment, trade and development economics, and work with experts to understand more about Government Intervention and Policy Instruments to Achieve Equity. You can find all the information and how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, let's have a look at some of your questions and comments. I always enjoy this bit. So there was an article that we put up on Policy Forum last week called Is Newstart Slowly Killing People? It was by Elise Klein. And in the piece, Elise writes that it's well established that Newstart and its related payments are inadequate for the people relying on them and that the social security system that Australia originally set up to curb poverty is now only making it worse. And it's causing negative health outcomes for struggling Australians. And we had a a comment from Carl Viet on Facebook who wrote, Newstart was never intended for people to rely on. It was supposed to help people for several weeks looking for jobs. What do you make of that, Sue?
0: Um, Well, it's certainly the case that the the welfare system has evolved, um, economic conditions have changed, uh, you know, and people are staying, some people are staying on Newstart for considerable lengths of time. Um, but, you know, I think the the main uh point in uh, Elise's article is that, you know, the evidence is overwhelming now that the rate is too low of Newstart and that it's really not very helpful to put people into um abject poverty when they're trying to find work uh so you know there is this i'm i'm part of this broad consensus now which is uh you know in the community sector but also in the business uh sector which is that we we really do need an increase in the new start rate
1: and yet we're not seeing much movement on that dial are we
0: no we're not um i mean it's uh i feel in a way that uh particularly the current government has backed itself into a political corner on this one um and of course, you know, it costs money to increase the rate of new start and uh, the continued uh, desire for a, uh, a surplus means that, you know, new spending commitments are very difficult. So, yes, it's still, despite that broad consensus, it still unfortunately feels like we may be some way off from getting an increase in the rate.
1: So thanks for that comment, Carl. The next I want to have a look at is a comment on the podcast that we put out last week. And it was called Beyond Declaring a Climate Emergency. And it was Shane Rattenbury, Imran Ahmed and Liz Hanna. And in that podcast, our great green debate team returned to discuss the remaining audience submitted questions of our recent live event. And the panel took a look at why it's high time to speak about climate change in the context of Australia's dramatic bushfires how we can ensure a just energy transition, and what peaceful protests can really do to spur climate action. And we had a comment from Vanessa on our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. Once again, do jump in and join us there. And Vanessa wrote, thank you for the timely podcast. You're welcome, Vanessa. Just picking up on the comments about politicians not accepting the science of climate change. Will removing political donations from those profiting off fossil fuels assist in changing the mindset of a number of politicians? I'm finding it very difficult to understand why there is such a blatant disregard for what the experts are saying. What do you think about that, Sue?
0: So yes, there's, there's no doubt that um, vested interests are influencing the climate change debate um, and political donations are part of that. Murky world of exercising your vested interests. Um, you know, I, I think Vanessa's concern is also part of a a wider and perhaps more dangerous trend in disregarding expertise and uh, experts more generally. And it's something that many. Scholars and policy experts and others uh, uh, are fighting and trying to increase the voice of experts in policy reform.
1: Of course, there was that famous quote from Michael Gove from a few years back where he was talking about how Britain had had enough of experts. Was that the beginning of where the kind of rot set in or had it already started at that point?
0: Yeah, I I think it was already rotting at that stage. I think he, in a way, uh, just you know, articulated a sense in the, you know, in the political classes in particular that uh, expertise hadn't been helpful at times. So it's, uh, you know, I think where we are today with a distrust of expertise in some areas has, a, has a, a long legacy and, you know, I think will take some time to address as well.
1: Do you think that uh, disregard of expertise is uh, from politicians towards experts or does it also come from society?
0: I think it probably is both. I think there's such a, um, you know, a multitude of information and data out there now that it's very difficult for people, uh, to know what is uh, good information, what is the truth. Um, if that exists. So I think it is a, a, a wider societal concern uh, and very difficult to know, you know, which experts to believe, because, of course, you know, there's a lot of contested issues out there and uh, not all experts agree on what is the evidence.
1: That's a great comment, Vanessa. Many thanks for that. Um, And we really appreciate everyone who has got in contact with us over the last week to leave us a comment or leave us a question. If you would like to do the same, the best way to do that is to reach out to us on Facebook where we are, Policy Forum Pod. Join the group there. Uh, or you can hit us up on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, or email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Now, staying on the topic of the Facebook group, I would like to say a big hello to a few of our new members of the group there. So hello to Renee Manning, Craig Davis, Megan Fitzharris. That's Megan Fitzharris, who was on Democracy Sausage on Monday. Did you listen to that, Sue? It was terrific. Did. yeah. It
0: was great. Really interesting.
1: Great stuff. And to Rayleigh O'Neill as well. Hello to all of you. It's great to have you on board. And special thanks to Craig, who gave us an idea for a future episode of Policy Forum Pod, which I want to run past you. So Craig suggested he would like to find out more about lobbying in a real way, not just conspiracy stuff, but actually join in the dots about how policies are formed on both sides that don't seem to serve the public on either left or right. What do you think of that?
0: Yeah, I think that's a a great idea. I mean, in particular, his idea about looking at lobbying. I think it's one of those kind of dark arts that we... Uh, you know, don't know enough about. So, yeah, that's a, a great idea.
1: Yeah, so thanks for submitting that topic, Craig. We're actually keeping a list of all of the suggestions we get for potential future pods on a whiteboard in the office, so we'll be sure to add that. And if you listeners would also like to get your ideas up on the whiteboard, you might want to reach out to us on that Facebook podcast group. Type in Policy Forum Pod and you will find us there. That's Leo, Branco, Yulia and me. We're all there. Uh, And you can also reach us on Twitter, of course, where we're Apps Policy Forum or email us, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Now, today's episode has been written by Yulia Irons, It's been edited by Branko Svelyevich with executive production by me, Martin Pearce. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, from me, cheerio.
0: And for me, Sue, Cheerio O2.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.